Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency for the New Spectator USA website. I'm joined today, uh, as so often, and um, I'm so pleased that it's so often, by Jacob Halbrun, who is uh, the editor of The National Interest and a frequent contributor, a columnist at Spectator USA. And we're going to be looking ahead to the State of the Union address uh, by President Donald Trump tonight and asking what sort of condition his presidency is in at this moment. Jacob, I think there's a the latest poll that's come out shows Trump on 48% again. Um, and, of course, the Team Trump, if you like, are cheering this as a sign that he's still the Teflon Don. He still manages to keep his base and re- remain a, a, a strong candidate for 2020, despite all the confusion and seemingly chaos going on around him. What, what do you think? Well, Freddie, I must say that initially I had some trepidation when you said that I was a constant guest. I feared I might have worn out my welcome, <laughs> but it was good to hear your reassurance afterwards. But I didn't feel as much trepidation, I suspect, as President Trump did today when he learned that the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York are seeking to interview members of the Trump Organization and issuing subpoenas about the inauguration and the funding of the 2016 inauguration, including attempting to seek to find out as far as possible whether Russian money was helping to pay or is being funneled through the inauguration committee. But again, we, we, there's, n- there's no real indication of evidence here. There's just the search for evidence, right? Correct. Yeah. But it is important to remember that Watergate did take several years before it really broke open. And the constant refrain of the Trump myrmidons is that he is in fact innocent and that this is a witch hunt and that no evidence has been amassed. Of course, we have in fact seen not only a number of indictments, but also successful prosecutions, Mm. including Paul Manafort. The question is, do you see it as a pincer movement by Mueller? Or do you believe that Mueller, in but, fact, has, has, has no real evidence? But the latest uh, subpoena, I can never pronounce that word right, is, uh, is not, it's not coming from Mueller. Correct. And that I should have been more clear there. What's interesting about that is that some members of the Trump White House and others in the media and the legal community have also speculated that, in fact, the real threat posed to Trump is by the Southern District of New York, which is looking at his financial affairs. Hmm. And in that regard, it is interesting as well that the Democrats are moving ahead to try and extract Trump's tax records. This is the idea that, you know, one way or another, they'll get him. Uh, the, the Democrats or the, the Southern District of New York or Mueller, that they will, they will tie him down on so many fronts that at some level they're going to find something that is sufficiently damning to be considered illegal or that they will, they will find a way of, of getting Trump. Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, that, that's the hope of Trump's detractors yes. in the Democratic Party. Now, the, the question is, is the wish the father of the thought? Is there really 
a damning enough revelation or evidence mm. to ensure that Trump would feel compelled to cut a deal with Vice President Mike Pence, seek a pardon for himself and his family, and peacefully resign the presidency. And you but if that does not occur, then his chances for re-election have to be judged as not marginal. Right. So, sorry, what are you saying there? You're saying I'm saying that Trump, if he can weather this storm, yeah. then is a viable candidate for a second term. But, in, I mean, Mueller hasn't finished yet, but he seems to have weathered the most of it. I mean, most of the speculation now is that it will be family members who are in trouble and not necessarily Trump himself. I don't buy it. It's too early to tell. You think it's too early to tell? Absolutely. Yeah. Both, both, it's interesting, both Trump's accusers and defenders are often prone to, uh, maybe euphoria is too strong, but mm. to grandiose pronouncements. The, the pro-Trump faction tells us with metronomic regularity that Mueller is about to end the investigation and that He's got that he'll simply produce a damp squib. Yeah. Whereas the the Trump foes are fervently yes. convinced that there is some bombshell lurking in there. Justice is just around the corner. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, to, to a large extent, the the media conversation. I mean, I know you know. Obviously, depends what media channel you tune into. But CNN and MSNBC are still talk about it a lot. Washington Post still talk about it a lot. New York Times slightly less so, I've noticed, um, than Mueller inquiry I'm talking about. And the conversation now is really, it's moving towards uh, the wall, the the fight with Pelosi and this idea that, you know, it's it's Nancy's house now and Trump can't handle it. Um, and also Syria, foreign policy is going to be a big issue, we think, in his speech tonight. Um, how much do you think that the Trump presidency is moving on, or do you think he's actually so worried about what Mueller might have against him that he's paralyzed by it? No, I don't think he's paralyzed. Trump is uh, a force of nature at bottom, mm-hmm. and uh, he's constantly trying to calculate what the odds are and how he can extricate himself from perilous situations. Yeah. He's done this many times in the past and no doubt believes that he can replicate his past Houdini-like escapes from bankruptcy. Yes. But he's never faced this kind of opposition and and the investigations are multifarious, if I may use a fancy word. Uh, investigations of the White House, investigations of the inauguration, investigations of the Trump campaign. It just goes on and on. The The formidable aspect of Trump is that he seems to have harbored larcenous aspects, not just in one sphere, but to anything he touches. He is the ultimate con man. In what, I mean, explain that a bit more. He sees everything as a business opportunity. Yeah. Clearly, the, the negotiations over Trump Tower, uh, in uh, building a Trump Tower in Moscow, were not ancillary to the 2016 campaign, but a, but a motivating factor. He, mm. he was trying to use the campaign to buttress his position in Moscow. But how much of that is just the way American business operates or American businessmen operate? You know, everything is an opportunity. Uh, and then, you know, even once, you've, even once you're running for president, you would just pause it. 
You know, and he, he, I mean, I'm not sure we have damning evidence to suggest Trump was involved with that tower project. We know that Ivanka was. Do we have any? Do we have any evidence to suggest that he was involved with the Moscow Tower after when he said he was? Well, yes. I mean, we we clearly now know that he was dissembling when he when he claimed that he wasn't involved, with that there were no contacts between the campaign and Russia. I mean, there, there were there were. I think over a hundred contacts. Yeah, and he also lied about the uh, or prevaricated about his negotiations over the over the Trump Tower. We know that from Michael Cohen. Yeah, well, but so he's not a reliable witness. No, he's not. I mean, Trump. Trump is uh, well. Michael Cohen. Um, I don't think he had anything to to gain by making. He he was he had to make those admissions. I mean. If, if the evidence was as overwhelming as it appears to be. Trump is just an ordinary businessman? No. There's a reason that no other banks in the United States would loan to him. And even Deutsche Bank, we, we learned just in a New York Times piece a day ago, refused a, a request of his during the campaign because they thought that it would be, might be difficult uh, to get the money back from him if, if he became president. Okay, yeah. Well, let's let's move off Russia. Well, important though I recognise it is. Uh, Are you rushing, Freddie? I'm rushing to get off Russia, uh, but I just think I think you know that the the conversation at the moment is not really uh, about Russia so much. I know you do have these bombshells still, apparent bombshells still going off, um, but I'm I'm interested in um, what's happening uh, with Syria. Why did the Senate block uh, Trump's proposal to withdraw troops from Syria. I mean, what, could you explain a little bit about the dynamics there? Well, there, there, there clearly are factions within the Republican Party, and the dominant faction has been the hardline national security one, which majority Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell belongs mm. to. And McConnell... And I wouldn't be surprised if McConnell was machinating with the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, to try this in, and block some of Trump's initiatives. The question tonight is, in the State of the Union, will Trump make a bold move and declare that he's pulling troops out of Afghanistan and as well as Syria? Uh, the Senate Republicans are also poised to oppose Trump on the wall if it does come to a vote. They're telling him, McConnell told him not to employ emergency powers. But, but, I mean, uh, the the people in his base who want him to pull out of Syria and Afghanistan are sort of seeing this as a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to redefine American foreign policy. They think that he might do that in this speech. I mean, apart from that, that might exaggerate his powers of oratory. Um, it is true that this is a, he's reaching a crunch point now against what you might call the, the national security consensus, and that actually he has the people behind him on on many aspects of uh, of, of the American demographic. You know, it's not just his base. There's a there's a strong appetite for getting out of um, Syria and for ending this otherwise endless war in Afghanistan. Well, Trump could fundamentally revise American foreign policy if he reached some kind of a deal with North Korea and pulled troops out from South Korea, if he ends the war in Afghanistan and pulls troops out of Syria. 
he is n- he is not to be underestimated on that front. And invades Latin America. <laughs> Correct. Well, there there it's he the idea apparently is to topple what John Bolton, the national security advisor, has called a troika of tyranny. Mm. So the idea would be to first end the Maduro regime in Venezuela, then topple Cuba, and then finally oust Ortega in Managua. But that's interesting, isn't it? That's where his geostrategic, his administration's geostrategic sites are now set. They're looking at Latin America, and they're not really thinking so much about the Middle East. It would, it um, would be a reversion, again, to an older Republican foreign policy, yeah. where we were fairly isolationist, or the Republicans were fairly isolationist, in America in general, uh, in, towards Europe and Asia. But we did, in, for example, in the 1920s, repeatedly, Herbert Hoover, uh, I mean, Calvin Coolidge, mm. and then Herbert Hoover, we did have invasions of Nicaragua under Republican, not of Nicaragua, but Central America, including Nicaragua. Because there can be quite hard-headed uh, national interest reasons for doing so. And, and I mean, you could argue there are in Venezuela. The bottom line is we like to throw our weight around in our backyard. <laughs> now, whether those were really in the American national interest is an open question. What we often ended up doing was installing and propping up corrupt and authoritarian regimes mm. that were then susceptible to their own coups down the road. But it is your backyard, whereas, whereas you know, the Middle East is less so. Correct. Mm. And the, the reason that we are having these immigration influxes from Central and Latin America is partly because America has intervened in these regions and bungled it badly in the past. Yes. But if he were to make uh, an impressive... He has made... once. He once at your magazine made uh, an impressive speech about foreign policy. He, he, ha- he is actually able to do it um, if he has the right speechwriter and he seems in the right mood on the night. I think you're being too magnanimous when you call it an excellent speech. It was, in fact, a somewhat schizophrenic speech. It was interesting, though, and it was... Um, it, it did provide a... It showed some intellectual coherence behind his thinking. Mm, I th- I'm not sure that's correct. I, <laughs> I think, I think it, it showed that Trump uh, was both uh, bold and sounded some conventional notes at the same time. This is, we're talking about the speech... This In the Mayflower speech. Yes. Yeah. But it, he did um, indicate that... Uh, he was going to follow a new course. I mean, that, that definitely did occur. And people have underestimated Trump on this front. Again, if he grasps the nettle, he could go down as an extremely consequential foreign policy president. But do you think he will? Or do you think he'll just sort of fudge it? His, his attention to these matters has been episodic. He's <laughs> running a chaotic administration. You have essentially various mercenaries trying to, to seize control. You have Marco Rubio and John Bolton steering policy in Latin America. You have Mike Pompeo and Bolton trying to pursue an extremely aggressive course towards Iran. You have Rand Paul whispering in, Senator Rand Paul whispering into Trump's ear that yes. he should follow a more isolationist course but in then the Middle East. In Trump's admittedly extremely arrogant head, he thinks that he can kind of offset all these, because obviously Rand Paul is very opposed to John Bolton's foreign policy, and he, he likes to, he talks about how he likes to have 
people disagree, and then he can make this sort of executive decision in his executive time, which we know he spends a lot of time doing. This is the Franklin Roosevelt theory of of policy. Roosevelt always had competing factions in his administration. Many presidents do. But Trump certainly has taken it to a new extreme. Yes. Where the president at times seems to be blissfully ignorant of what's actually taking place. The appointment of Elliot Abrams by Mike Pompeo, for example, to be our emissary to Venezuela is quite astonishing. Because originally, Abrams had been blocked from taking an appointment in the State Department because Trump was enraged by his never-Trump stance. Yes. But, it, I mean, in a way, it might be quite clever sort of distraction that, you know, the, the, the neocon, if you like, or the, the um, very aggressive, early-minded foreign policy people are all obsessing over Latin America now. And it, it, this gives him a little bit of wiggle room, although not, as we saw in the Senate last weekend, you know, on Syria and Afghanistan to become more of a dove in these long and painful conflicts that everyone is tired of. The more likely prospect, to, to be honest, Freddie, is that the entire thing is going to end in a shambles. That's true. But there could be an element of creative destruction in the way he runs. Well, there already has been. He's, yeah. he's forced the Europeans to re-examine their stance toward NATO. Yeah. Though he hasn't been able to get as much as he wanted. But the Europeans have started to realize that the United States is not simply a benevolent uncle. Yes. There's a long piece in the Washington Post today about how freaked out the Europeans are by Trump and that he has, in fact, forced them to recognize that they can't simply rely on the America indefinitely. Which is one of the reasons you talk, that a lot of European leaders are now talking quite seriously about a European army. Um, they can which, talk. Which was once dismissed as a, as a Brexit right. paranoia. It would be a nice thing, but they can talk, they talk and talk and talk. Yeah. Do they actually do anything? Is there the stomach in Germany to pay for it or in any of the other countries on the continent? I doubt it. I I think there may be the stomach, but I don't think there's the actual money. (laughs) I think that's the bigger problem. Well, when I say stomach, I mean they, you know, you would have to cut welfare benefits or you'd simply have to spend more. And they're not willing to do that. Well, let's, let's move on to Trump and the wall, because obviously he's suffered this seeming political defeat of having to pause uh, on the on the shutdown to temporarily end the shutdown, while he tries to sort of scramble for a compromise with the Democrats on border security funding, on money for his wall. Um, I mean, it would be typically Trumpist to double down tonight and say, "We're going to build a wall. You can't stop us." Uh, but there's sort of whispers that this will be a, an appeal for unity tonight. He's going to try and appeal for unity. I mean, how badly do you think he's lost that political argument? Uh, or do you think he will keep the emergency um, declaration of a national emergency in his back pocket and express his willingness to do it tonight and therefore to build a wall even if he doesn't have the support in Congress? I don't think that he will call for a national emergency tonight. He sent out a tweet today in which he said, it would be so much easier if we had a wall, but if necessary, we'll have a human wall. I'm sending more military to the border. So I think, yes, this has been his Alamo. He's, he's lost the battle. If he pushes through with the emergency declaration, then he splits the Republican Party and potentially has to issue a veto if they, if they uh, don't approve his, uh, his national emergency declaration. So 
I think, the, the, look, all along he's he's been in a crisis of his own making. He's not a not that sophisticated a politician. He was outmaneuvered by Nancy Pelosi, and now he's running for cover. But there's always an element of brilliance behind his instincts. And uh, I mean, if you look at the sort of states, which are there are various states that have uh, you know that are in play for 2020, where his rhetoric on immigration and border security plays very well. And Democrats certainly don't want to be heard publicly opposing him on border security. And, and, that's, and he may win that political argument in the long run, even if on the shutdown he appears to have lost it. I doubt it, because there, the appetite for the wall, the polls show that it's fairly low in the industrial states in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Ohio. It appeals to his, 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 much of his base but beyond that, I don't think it's a political winner. If it had been a winner, the Democrats would not have done well in the 2018 midterm elections. The Republicans went to town on the immigration threat, and Trump repeatedly emphasized it to no avail. But I, to my shame, I don't have the statistics to hand, but actually I thought Rust Belt states are more concerned about immigration than one would think they would be, uh, considering they're not overtly affected by it right. that Texas is. Yeah. That's And there is something to that, but I don't think that the appetite for a wall is that great. The wall became a, a trope for, for, for Trump. And I, he, there was a good article in the New York Times again how Trump has repeatedly tried to play the fear card, but it's not working anymore. Well, it, I mean, it does work in some states which are worried about immigration. I mean, it... it you know, I'm not and, even and, sure that it works in Texas, to be honest, where they don't they, they don't want the land expropriation to take place. Well, that may be true, yeah. But I mean, I think it also puts the Democrats on the back foot sometimes because they end up sort of virtue signaling about walls being an immorality, which is, of course, an extremely inconsistent position because you can point to lots of other countries where they have a wall, do they oppose them there, et cetera, et cetera. The Democrats need to come up with their own border security plan. Yes, but what is that? They have a, a tough time with this issue on, on immigration, hmm. and uh, they're going to have to come up with something that is plausible. I mean, that right now they're talking about spending more money on border security, but they haven't actually taken a stance on immigration. That's a separate issue from border security. Or, to sound a bit Sean Hannity on you, that's because they can create a whole, whole new cohort of voters every four years through immigration. Maybe. It's, it's, it's also interesting that the, you know, in these elections, we have not really seen what my friend John Judas called the emerging new majority. Mm. It's, it's, Obama managed to construct a new coalition, but then it collapsed under Hillary Clinton. So there's a lot of skepticism. And people don't necessarily vote Democratic, who are Hispanic, as they become more prosperous, they, they, it didn't happen in Florida, for example. Well, yes, and and I mean, Joshua, I think it is Joshua Trump, has been invited um, on the grounds that he was bullied because his surname is Trump, even though he's no relation. Uh, do you expect there'll be similar pyrotechnics tonight? It could be even greater. We'll see what. The Democrats do, as Trump speaks, if some of the members will be un unable to contain themselves. It's going to be quite a theatrical show. They're wearing clothes to protest Trump. Yes. I mean, they could actually try to drown him out with booing. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, Joe Wilson shouted, you lie, to Barack Obama during a State of the Union 
address, and that really marked a turning point, I think. Yes. In the in the but solemnity of the occasion. But this is an interesting thing about the Democrats now. They, you know, you'd think that by sort of steering a steady course, they could they could watch Trump implode. But of course, they have a very radical dimension to them now, and that's where they get all their grassroots support from. So they have to speak to it. Um, but if they did, if they do, sort of keep up this level of radicalism on things like healthcare or whatever, they might alienate the vast majority of Americans. I'm not so sure. You think the we've, vast majority of Americans might be becoming uh, radically? We've, we've become as socialist as you Brits, Freddie. Well, I think that seems to be true. I actually, I, the, the the latest study shows that 70% of Republicans support Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's proposals for taxing the rich. No, hang on, it was 45%, except her proposals of 70% tax on the rich, which is quite quite interesting. I thought it was very un-American to want to tax there aren't, wealth. There aren't as many rich people as there are middle class and lower class. And they're increasingly angry. Yes. Yeah. And Trump tapped into that as well. His mistake may have been to camp, he campaigned as a populist, but then governed as a traditional Republican in economics. Yes. And the tax cut, I actually the think tax cut is actually quite good rhetoric for his tax cut, which was greatly hyped by the Republicans and did actually help some middle class people. Uh, but it speaks very much to Democratic resentments and also Republican working class resentments. He could have outmaneuvered the Democrats in the first months of his presidency if he proposed an infrastructure plan and said that he's going to put the country back to work. The Trump New Deal. Yes. Yeah, it was talked about. Um, and, I mean, he did try a huge infrastructure project, but it was never... It was never... Successful. Never came up with anything tangible. Instead, he uh, went along with the business wing of the Republican Party, which is the Republican Party. Yeah. Well, Jacob, I think we'll end it there, but thank you very much, as always. Thank you, Freddie. Please come back again.